Hello, and welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the only movie I saw this year that's longer than The Irishman. Before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast. <laughs> on this podcast, we talk about games. Yes, uh, loyal listeners, for those of you who tuned into last week's episode, we covered the Watchmen comic book from 1986, written by Alan Moore, illustrated by Dave Gibbons. Uh, this week, we are tackling the 2009 movie directed by none other than Zack Snyder. Hashtag release the Snyder Cut. <laughs> well, he did for that movie. That's that's where this comes from, right? Like the that's, direct- I, Well, you know, yeah. I mean, he, he has done this a couple of times for a couple of different movies, including Batman vs. Superman, right? Which also ultimately got an ultimate cut. Um, so... Uh, yeah, so Watchmen released in 2009 with a theatrical cut. Uh, there was a director's cut a little bit later that was uh, maybe like 30 minutes longer. Uh, it was a lot of extra, uh, you know, like a lot of extra material added in. And then finally they released the ultimate cut, um, which edited in about 20 minutes of an animated short that was produced featuring the Tales of the Black Freighter, which is the pirate storyline from the comic book. Originally, obviously, uh, it, the, those two things were separate, but, you know, the guys at Warner Brothers were like, hey, let's shove them all together into a big thing, and they released, boom, uh, the the Watchmen Ultimate Cut. Um, so, so yeah, so that's what I watched. Is that what you watched? Yes, that is, that is also what I watched. I actually couldn't rent it. I had to buy it on Amazon. Um... Uh, but you know, it was, it was $15 well spent. I thought it was, I thought it was, uh, uh, like, so I remember being mixed on the movie. I haven't seen it since 2009 when I saw it in theaters. I remember being mixed on that movie. Um, and I liked it a lot better this time around. I can't tell how much of that is just like it aged well and how much of it is like things that added that I can't tell the difference between. Um, I think, I think there's a pretty marked, I mean, I like the theatrical cut, um, but I kind of almost like like the theatrical cut, sort of like uh, despite itself in a way. Um, like there's a lot of things that I would agree with critics uh, don't sort of like, it's particularly the pacing. It has the same sort of problem that the the BBS theatrical cut had, where things just kind of like happen too quickly, and there's not enough sort of like time for like moments in the story to be properly paced. Um, between one another. Um, I kind of talked about this as, like, narrative arthritis, right? Like, there's not enough kind of, like, cartilage between the bones of the story. Uh, in the director's cut, I feel like there is that cartilage. And so it just it just works much better um, as sort of, like, a long-form experience. Uh, the same thing with the ultimate cut. I think both, both of them are uh, pretty good. I like the ultimate cut a lot because I also like the Tales of the Black Freighter short. I've heard a couple of criticisms of that short that, like, the animation is bad or whatever. Um, but like the animation know, looks always... like looks kind of like they were trying to emulate the uh, like the comic book a little bit. Yeah, right? and like I it's... think it is supposed to be like grotesque in a way. Like you know, he looks bad in a way, but like that's kind of the point in my yeah. in my head. And I also just love that it's Gerard Butler uh, who comes back re- re- reuniting with his boy Zach <laughs> after three hundred to do uh, to do the narration because he kills it. And also, by the way. Um, Oh god, what's his name? Jared Harris, who uh he was most recently in Chernobyl, uh is also featured in the uh in the Tales of the Black Freighter. I heard his voice, I was like, Oh my god, whoa. <laughs> yeah, no, uh um so uh to that point I also so part of the trouble I had with reading it in the comic is like 
it was a little bit wordy and it was kind of easy to just kind of let my eyes like glance over some of the details in the text in the in the inserts of the tales of the black freighter inside mm-hmm. the the watchman comic and so having it on screen i think it really tied it tied the themes and i think a little bit better for me um just kind of like uh like the 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 kind of like i i think so um, this will kind of launch into into some of the analysis stuff, and so I guess we should do this. But spoilers for a ten year old movie. Um, <laughs> um, but I think that the the tales of the Black Freighter kind of ties in the idea that like like it kind of like cements the idea that Ozymandias is also wrong, right? Like that's like kind of the moral of that story is that you become like in in attempting to do the right thing, you become a monster, which is pretty clearly Ozymandias's arc. Um, yeah, it's also timed a lot better. This is something yeah. um, that, uh, you know, like, the the original comic... And so, okay, so something that the original comic does is it sort of, like, layers it, right? So, for instance, you'll be at the newsstand, and you'll be reading, like, captions of what's happening in the Black Freighter, but also the newsstand stuff is going on at the same sort of time. Right. Whereas in this, right, like, the Black Freighter is kind of given its own dedicated section and story, um, and on top of that, where it comes in in the narrative, it kind of better matches the, like, kind of better matches the overall story with Ozymandias and what's uh, and what's been going on, right? Like, it cuts right from you know, like, the moment where he is like about to you know be confronted, um, like he he sh- he sends the big blast, and they, you see the light up in Karnak, and then it cuts to the comic. And so you see that it, like, directly follows Ozymandias' action is this comic that is a commentary on those actions, right. if that makes sense. Whereas in, inside of the Watchmen comic, uh, it mostly just revolves around that one line that we talked about last week, the um, where he where Ozymandias says he's been dreaming towards swimming to, like, a black massive, you know, but he cuts himself off, and you it's, like, up to you to read the subtext there. Right, like, right. It's very easy to miss that sort of thing um, compared to in the... In the show where Oz, or I'm sorry, in the movie where Ozymandias says to the camera, "I did this for the greater good." You gotta, you know, you gotta break a few eggs to make an omelet, and then it cuts to the thing where he's like, "Oh, my noble intentions turned me into a fucking monster. My deductions were flawless, but still, I'm so wrong." And so, yeah, I think that's, I think that stuff all works pretty well. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely, I, I absolutely agree. Um, I do sort of wonder a little bit if, uh, like, so people have said this about the Lord of the Rings extended cuts or whatever, that, like, the proper way to introduce somebody to Lord of the Rings is through the theatrical cut, and then, like, if they're still into it, you can show them the extended cuts, but, like, people will do this thing where they will insist upon the extended cuts, and it's kind of, like, too much for, like, the layman, and I sort of get a similar feeling. I feel like the director's cut, maybe, um, is probably the right place to, shall we say, enter uh, the the Watchmen movie and um I, I think I think and, it depends on previous exposure. Crater. Like I think yeah. you can, I think you can jump straight to the extended cut if or the ultimate cut rather if uh if they're like comic book fans, right? Like if they're fans of the of the comic book, not generally comic books, but like if they, you know, just read the Watchmen, right? Then like I think you can jump straight into the ultimate cut, especially since the ultimate cut is essentially the stuff that they will already have read in the comic with the Black Freighter, right? Like um, but I think, I, I think you might be right. Like, unless they've got some previous exposure, you probably want to start with something that's a little bit less onerous. Cause like I said, um, I mean, you know, I said it kind of tongue in cheek, but it like, 
I went to load it up. I'm like, Jesus, this is actually longer than The Irishman. And, uh, you know, not that that movie was a slog, but, you know, that it, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of time. Um, yeah. Um, I found, so just for, for those at home looking to maybe break it up, I found that, like, if I needed a break, I would wait until one of the Tales of the Black Freighter segments started because they put it kind of in at natural breaks. Um, and I would pause it there and then do what I had to do. Like, I made lunch sat down and then turned it back on and I thought yeah. I thought that was a decent way to, to break it up um, yeah I'm actually surprised to hear that you uh, that you had a good time I feel, I thought this was gonna be a fight because uh, if you remember a couple of years ago I think at this point I mentioned on the cast that I think the Watchmen movie is like a plus superhero cinema right and the, and you scoffed at that notion you were like oh come on man like no way sort of thing so uh, <laughs> so so something that's really interesting and the thing that really struck me it almost struck me right off the bat because it happens with the uh with the uh, the comedian death scene, is that this isn't like, uh, say, a Marvel superhero movie. This almost feels it, – it's like a kung fu movie, right? It's like yeah. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I thought was, like, very cool, right? Like, it was – it was it's different. It. I feel like if it came out – if I saw a movie like that that came out today, I'd kind of be a breath of fresh air in the superhero genre because it's kind of got that, like – magical what, what's what, is there a term for like that kind of like wuja style yeah i mean i don't know it's it's very matrixy yeah uh, yes exactly yes and, that's good uh, and it, it's almost like it falls at the tail end of that kind of era i see i it, i remember it also being great action in this era this is also why i like 300 a lot at the time right like because I remember that era being just full of action that I felt was just, like, incredibly hard to read. And was, like, this was, like, the Jason Bourne, you know what I mean? Um, era of movies, kind of, like, the back half of the 2000s. Uh, so I remember watching 300 and watching this and being, like, oh, my God, this action is so, like, clear and legible and, like, forceful in a way that I really appreciated. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think one of my favorite moments is in that opening fight scene when the comedian punches through, Ooh, the like, wall. the corner of the wall. Yeah, yeah, like, I mean, this is always the stuff that I really appreciate about, like, specifically Zack Snyder's filmmaking, right, is that he makes it feel weighty in a way that other places, even when it does have, like, legible action, can sometimes feel sort of like people are just, like, you know what I mean? Slapping each other with no force. Yeah. Um, well, and so I, having all of the collateral destruction, right? Like tossing Ozymandias into the TVs and they all shatter. Or like, you know, Rorschach punching the dude's head through the toilet bowl. And it, and it like all of that kind of, uh, that breakable stuff gives uh, gives kind of like a weight and a power behind it that I always really enjoyed. Yeah, I, I think on top of that, the fact that it's... Um... That 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 it is kind of over the top, right? Like that it's not like so something something that I, th I think I saw this in every frame of painting um, is this idea that like in like a good martial arts movie, like a Jackie Chan movie, right? Like they'll shoot it so that you can see the cont continuity of the of the action. Whereas in a lot of action movies, you know, a lot of action stars aren't, or a lot of a lot of actors aren't like you know athletes, right? So they'll cut it so that so that it looks impactful without actually having to be. Uh, without you know them actually having to do big punches or whatever, right? Um, and because it's not trying to look realistic, you can even though like you can see that like maybe the punches don't like look like they connect as hard as they should or whatever. The fact that it's complemented by this over the top kind of you know like like people flying across the screen and like these over the top comic book sounding sound effects. Um, oh yeah, I love the sound but, effects. Yeah, <laughs> like I think that like you know even though it, like. 
feels a little fake. It like goes well with kind of the motif and like because it's so over the top, the fact that the that the punches don't, at least to my eye, look as real. Um, it doesn't matter as much, right? Like so that, to, to your previous comment, I would say that I think that this movie might be the best comic book adaptation I've seen in terms of in terms of presentation and cinematography, right? Like the Marvel superhero movies are cool superhero movies, but they don't feel like the comic books. This one feels very much like a comic book, which I thought was, yeah. was, was I mean, it, well, this is the thing that it was kind of like lauded for at the time um, is how many of how many individual panels, right? Got lifted and injected into the, into the movie, right? Like, it's not just that the, you're, you're capturing the spirit. It's like, no, like, when Ozymandias throws the comedian out the window, that is a essentially a shot-for-shot shot remake of the panel in the comic where the comedian is thrown out the window. Um, and it happens all, all, like, all throughout over the, you know, like, over the course of the movie, even with, you know, a number of the different sort of, like, adaptational changes. Um, and, uh, and I think that that is part of why it gets, like, you know, like, there, there's a part of me um, that sort of thinks in a weird way that, like, the movie is just kind of – it's kind of like a crazy handicap in a way just by being based on Watchmen, right? Like, it's so good just because the source material is so good. Um, and, uh, and because it is so close to the source material, it ends up sort of borrowing a lot of its quality by osmosis in a way. Do you know what I mean? Uh yeah, uh yeah 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 I I I think I think I I think I buy that yeah. which seems like weird and a little bit like unfair and it's kind of counterintuitive because obviously like I love Zack Snyder and I want to like celebrate him or whatever but the truth is right like that you know as much as I think he would deserve a certain however much credit right like just the fact that he this is obviously going to be a higher quality movie just because it is a higher quality sourced. Uh, it is it is sourced from something that is so high quality. I guess is what I mean to uh, is what I mean to say, right? Like there are plenty of moments in here where people are just repeating lines that Alan Moore wrote, and obviously Alan Moore's a really talented writer. So when he writes things, right, like you know those were the days Rorschach, whatever happened to them, you quit, right? Like things like though that that carry plenty of meaning and uh, kind of uh, kind of like an ethos, right? Like that's. It, it does it's not up to anything in the movie besides just saying hey this is a really great line let's let's like transpose it over one to one yeah yeah uh yeah yeah no that, that makes a lot of sense um on the on the flip side of that though I, I do want to say that I think that that there are some things that the movie does that like I think bring like make the comic a lot better right like like the Hall Mason death scene in particular. Right, like I kind of like forgotten how that went because it's it's kind of what is it? it's nine. I'm looking at the page now. It's like nine panels, right? Mm. But I thought that the way that they did it in the film was just so superb, right? Like the oh, absolutely, the, the yeah. It's so it's so much more tragic, yeah. Um, partially because of the mu- the music, right? But like the cutting to like the you know it's the juxtaposition yeah. of celeb- of the celebration. By the way, I think this is only in the director's cut. I don't think this is in the theatrical cut. Um, of the the celebration of him punching like the bad guys 
and between the like the gruesome violence and his grisly murder that is like oncoming yeah man (laughs) that is like a really like tough and moving scene in the movie uh, in a way that you know, like I mean, it's obviously moving in the comic, but uh, not uh, not to the same sort of effect. Right, and, and also like in in the movie, he gets a few good hits hit. Right, it's much less clear that that like it's just kind of juxtaposed in in the comic. Um, uh, but like, uh, yeah, I just I just thought it was super 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 well done in the uh, yeah. In, in, in yeah, I also think that the movie benefits from its soundtrack a lot in a way that you know, like obviously a comic yeah. book can't have a soundtrack, right? Um, but like one of my favorite shots um, and moments is they're playing. It's like all along the watchtower, and right as the kind of the guitar slide happens is when Archie crests above Antarctica, and like the camera flips or whatever. And it's just like little small moments like that are flares that are only possible because of the soundtrack. Right? Oh yeah, like this, um, the the soundtrack I have long said is 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 phenomenal. Um, yeah. Although I will say on rewatch, playing Hallelujah to them having sex was a little bit on the nose. Okay, so here's the thing about – there are two songs in there that I had a really hard time with. And one was Hallelujah because for some reason there's like a there's like a Smash Mouth cover of that song <laughs> from the Shrek soundtrack, I'm pretty sure. And I, I don't know where in the last ten years I've picked this up, right? But like – I have, and I couldn't help but be like, oh, God, did Smash Mouth do a cover of Hallelujah the entire time that they're fucking? <laughs> and then the other one is uh, they do Sounds of Silence, which now is a meme, right? Like, yeah. you know, like, it's a meme. You put it on a vine, something, you know, like, stupid happens, and then you shift to black and white, and you go, hello, darkness, my old friend. But, like, it's, like, really sad in the, in the co- It's, like... Supposed to be about, you know, like, obviously the funeral scene for uh, for the comedian and, like, somber or whatever. And I just, like, couldn't take it seriously because, like, the internet has ruined my brain, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you can't really blame that on the movie, though. Yeah, you know, you can't really blame that. Zack Snyder did not predict vines. Uh, therefore, the movie's bad. Um, but, yeah, so I, I think the soundtrack really kills it. There's actually a really great YouTube video about... Um, about the music that is used to make uh, Dr. Manhattan's theme, sort of, um, which is a piece of, like, minimalist music. And I wish I understood it well enough that I could really explain. But it's by the YouTuber named Sideways. It's, like, a 10-minute long video. I think it's called, like, Watchmen's Perfect Choice or something like that. Um, Watchmen's Perfect Musical Choice. Uh, We'll have it in the show notes, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, uh, Kind of... Uh, along those lines, though, I did want to highlight um, something that this is something I only picked up years later after kind of, you, you know, you talk about like political awakenings for kind of like, I guess it's my understanding of history. But like when they're playing the times, they are changing and they show like all the things that are that are that are different. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, from like real history. Um, the one that got me the most was uh, was was the flower power subversion, because I didn't catch that like 10 years ago. Right. Like. Um, you know, where they put the flower in the gun, right? Like that's oh, and like, then they, and then they fire. Flare. Yeah, yeah. Cause that's like a famous one that doesn't happen in real history, right? Like just like incredible. Like, um, I, I thought, it, I thought it was, uh, I, I just thought like, especially like, especially like that was just like super well done. I thought there were a lot of things that were really well done. Yeah. I think the, the opening credits, a lot of the times will, uh, will get a certain amount of, uh, praise, right? Like, because it's so hard to do this sort of thing. Right. Um, 
and uh, and we'll talk about uh, some of this stuff a little bit, I guess, probably next week too, because like it's the show and it's like episodic and has more time. But like one of the big challenges I think that the movie has to and sort of had to face is the fact that it doesn't have time to do everything right there's so much that the the comic was able to accomplish because of its like long running episodic sort of like nature and there's always going to be you know stuff that falls on the cutting room floor i guess right um like one of the big ones for instance is that the rorschach centered issue which i think is like issue five or issue six right where he's in jail and he's talking to the psychiatrist you get a lot more out of rorschach in in that comic but the thing that i think is really powerful about it is you watch that psychiatrist's life kind of fall apart yeah. and it ends with the nietzsche quote right like as you gaze into the abyss the the abyss also gazes into you and and rorschach's kind of like you know just horrifically dark black thinking infects this guy who is otherwise leaving leading like a pretty you know happy life or whatever and it like destroys him and his marriage and everything and you kind of get like follow a little bit of that story but like you don't have time for those sorts of indulgences when you need to cut the movie even if it is going to be a three-hour movie right um and so it definitely loses a little bit of that kind of stuff uh like in transition um which which sucks but ultimately is like the choice that you make when you have to go into kind of adaptation yeah no i i absolutely i absolutely agree with that so speaking of big adaptational choices, right, the big change that Watchmen makes is the ending, right? In the comic, Ozymandias create, you know, he, he kind of gathers together the creative power of writers and artists and stuff, um, clones the giant squid, and then teleports it to New York, where it, like, emanates the psychic shockwave that, like, also fucks up people the world over. Um, in this, it is a fabrication that... Uh, Ozymandias uh, replicates Dr. Manhattan's powers such that he sets off these, you know, incredibly devastating, uh, essentially bombs in New York, Moscow, uh, London, Paris, uh, all over the world. How do you feel about that change? Um, so, so the thing that stood out to me a lot is kind of like, um, I think part of what the change is in service to is making making a little bit more relevant to 2009 because there's a clear kind of through line i think uh to what like to to kind of energy stuff right like last year i, I or last year last week i said something about environmentalism which was wrong it was just like a mismemory on my part but it does seem to be like more targeting say um the conflicts in the middle east is kind of the reference point right like going to war over energy sources type of deal um and there's those scenes with the uh with like the oil barons um, mm -hmm. uh, from the middle, which doesn't happen because Doctor Manhattan's already done that, um, uh, in in the comic book world. Um, so I think that in the in in a way to kind of like make it a little bit more relevant to, uh, to modern times, I think that it's fine. Um, I think it makes it like it it being blamed on Doctor Manhattan. I think is. I don't know. I, I feel kind of mixed on that. What do you think? So, uh, I am a, I think, I think the ultimately the change is good. Uh, so here's kind of how the squid gets framed. Um, part of it is like a meta textual thing, but I think honestly, the real answer is just structural. So here, so here's like kind of the meta textual take. You might hate this. 
the metatextual take among like a comic person reading Watchmen, right, is that the squid is not just like the culmination of Ozymandias's plan, but it's also sort of like the culminating metaphor in kind of like a, a, a sort of like F plot in the story, which is about how like not only are superheroes substantively in like the world of the of the comic shitty and egotistical and narcissistic, right? But also that's it's like what the Watchmen comic also sort of posits that superheroes ruin comic books. Um and you get this a bunch with like the the commentary on sort of like Max Shea and the the Tales of the Black, Black Freighter, Freighter stuff. Yeah. Um, and there's one of the back matters that's talking all about the Tales of the Black Freighter and like Max Shea. Um, it name drops a, a, a very famous comics company to like comics people called EC Comics. Essentially, the, in the history, like the history of comics, there was like you know like the golden age of comics and superheroes were sort of a part of that. But there was a lot of stuff in there. There's horror comics. There's pulpy, you know, like detectivey kind of stuff. All this other sort of stuff, sort of like mixed together and then in the 50s because of seduction of the innocent where the superhero comics are you know like targeted towards kids want someone please think of the children and the comics essentially started self-censoring themselves they got rid of a lot of that stuff so they got rid of the horror comics they got rid of right the the sort of sleazier cheesier you know the romance stuff um, that was also kind of along there because people were doing the kind of like, won't you think of the children's thing? In Watchmen, it talks about how the effort to censor comics was rebuffed, essentially, because superheroes are real and people wanted to protect the, you know, Hooded Justice and Night Owl and the Minutemen or whatever. Um, and so the kind of culmination of that is that Max Shea and the artist. Um, are these people who are the kind of the creative force behind comics that got left behind in a way. And it is them sort of like, it is their kind of like vengeance. It's like the vengeance of like the Silver Age. Does that make sense to you? Uh, it makes it, it makes a modern amount of sense. I'm like I, paraphrasing. Yeah, I'm like paraphrasing like, like like it, a dozen it, different people. And I'm probably not doing a great job of explaining Um but yeah, that's the that's the whole point. The squid is a metaphor for like superhero comics killed all of this amazing creativity. That sucks, right? Um, but I think structurally for the movie, the real problem is that you can't do the squid without all of the foreshadowing, and that foreshadowing takes so much time. Yeah, and it's so unrelated to everything else. By switching the ending to making it more introspective to Doctor Manhattan, right? It is about Doctor Manhattan's alienation, and like he is personally being tricked through his work with Adrian and Ozymandias. Um, the you can thread the foreshadowing in otherwise normal scenes that you need to have to have, right? You have to have scenes with, like, you know, you, uh, like, Dr. Ma like Rorschach breaks into the compound, and Dr. Manhattan is, like, a, gaz a gazillion feet tall. Oh, well, now you can just have a thing where he's talking to Adrian, and he's teleporting the reactor to Karnak, right? And you can and you can sort of thread it in these other sorts of places such that like the ending is well supported by the foreshadowing, but also not like completely sort of like out of nowhere. It's the same sort of like indulgence that you kind of just don't have the time for. Yeah. Um, and that's really where I come down on the ending, right? Like I think, you know, I don't know. It's just like a big deal. Yeah, the only thing that I that that makes a little bit less sense, uh, to me at least, is like the comedian's involvement. Um, but you know, it's, it's, that's ultimately a minor nitpick that I don't care that much about. Um, it's not really clear why the comedian needs, like, so the way they played in the movie is the comedian's part of the project. Um, 
and they never really explain why, but it's it's fine. It's like a thing that it, it, this is like so so minor that I don't care that much. But it's just a thing that I did notice. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, and then I also think there's a couple of other pieces of the ending um, that I'm not incredibly, you know, like for instance, uh, the stuff with like uh, the um, I'm gonna go to a galaxy that's a lot less complicated. Doctor Manhattan says that to Lori, uh, and then he ends by kissing her and then leaving, which I think is just like a weird choice. Where Doctor Manhattan in the comic is having that conversation with Adrian, which seems more natural, right? Uh, part of this is that, like, I mean, I also feel like I have a weird perception of Dr. Manhattan because I've seen pe- people make kind of the opposite take of this. Um, I think the point a lot of the time of Dr. Manhattan is that he is above and beyond this stuff, right? Like, the comic wants you to think that Dr. Manhattan, I mean, like, it, we, we, like, it talks so much about how he doesn't perceive humanity in the same sort of way and he doesn't have like emotions in the same sort of way anymore and he's just like bigger and grander than that stuff now it's like too bad so sad um whereas in the movie you he's given sort of this more pathos ending which doesn't really like fit to me because like at the end of the day i don't think he really cares that much about like more your humanity and being like he he is he is brought back to Earth as a scientific curiosity. Do you know what I mean? Not as like a like an emotional connection to people, right? Um, and so that feels a little bit like weird and a little bit off. It's not like a killer, you know. Like it doesn't kill things, but I don't know. It is what it is. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with that. I I, I don't know. I I, I think I, I agree that like like they they, they kind of emphasize it. Dr. Manhattan was really human all along underneath, and I don't think that that really came through in the comic at all, or at least not nearly as much. Um, but, you know, I don't I don't think it's necessarily a bad choice. Um, something I did want to talk about briefly, which was um, I have heard the criticism that, like, um, that, like, this movie, like, doesn't really get the comic in in some ways um and i don't think that that's accurate but i can see where those kind of like points are which is um uh in particular the, the one that really stuck out at me was uh when uh when dan uh like attacks the top knot in the bar right like um for because somebody killed hollis mason right um and he says you know you know, I knew you were going to victimize me. What about my civil liberties, right? And I can see how that reads like, you know, look at this piece of scum trying to hide behind the law while Dan's trying to, like, do the right thing, right, and, like, exact justice, which is against, like, th- that is not, like, what the comic wants wants to be about, right? Like, the, the comic has a lot of commentary about how, like, superheroes are shit. Um, mm. um, and I don't think that was the intention in the movie, but I can see how it can get read that way, right? I think there was another moment like this too, but I can't quite remember it at the moment. But yeah, I, you know, I was actually prepared to kind of like also lay in a little bit on this level because I actually, to be to be honest with you, I'm going to sound a little bit like a conspiracy theorist. I think a lot of this is almost like the Mandela effect, but like not like in a sense of like 
the Mandela effect is real, but in the sense of like our memories are imperfect. And, you know, so for instance, I'm all over film Twitter, obviously, and film Twitter like hates Zack Snyder and thinks Zack Snyder is a piece of shit. And so people are always giving takes about like the Watchmen show and, and everything like that. And I've seen a lot of takes about the movie, you know, in my, in between seeing it, right? Like the last time I saw it was however long ago sort of thing. And I almost sort of like internalized a lot of criticisms that I just don't think are real. Um, like for instance, something that somebody like something that I was convinced of was that the movie didn't include a lot of Rorschach's politicized language, right? Like Rorschach talks about, you know, oh, Adrian is a homosexual or, you know, like the liberals and the fucking intellectuals and they're simpering and they're fat or, you know, uh, like the abattoir of retarded children, all this like politically loaded stuff. And, um, and it was, and it's like framed on film Twitter by like Zack Snyder haters that like Zack Snyder loves Rorschach because he's an idiot because Rorschach sucks and we all agree Rorschach sucks and Zack Snyder wants to make Rorschach better and more likable so he gets rid of all of the shitty things that Rorschach does but then I watched the movie and all of those lines are in there it, it opens with those lines right that's part of like the initial like Rorschach's diary voiceover which I was like oh I I, I thought those weren't in there but oh, okay good, good good job I guess um and I, and I kept finding myself in that sort of position where like I remembered I, I just think, I, I don't know. I think really what it is is just that, like, over time, people's bad takes have, like, influenced my memory of what the movie is like very, very passively. Yeah, no, I, like, kind of, you know, reading and watching relatively back-to-back, -back, I thought that it was that it was a little bit worse in the movie with Rorschach. Um, like, and maybe this is just kind of, like, the way I read and I wasn't reading super closely, but, like, I felt like... Rorschach called people liberals a lot more in the movie than they did in the comic. It, it, it oh, just yeah. made... And he's such a piece of shit. To, I mean, it's exactly all of the stuff that I was complaining about last week. It is all of that stuff all over again. He's terrible to Lori. <laughs> and she, like, calls him out on it or whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think the Rorschach stuff is uh, is pretty, like, rough. Honestly, I, even, it, I think the movie changes it to make it worse. Um, because of the way he kills the one guy in the, in, in the comic, he just sets the, sets the apartment on fire, right? In the movie, he brutally murders this man. And like, you sit there and you watch him, like, cleave the guy's head over and over as he's begging for his life, right? And it's just like... Oh, that, that was that was actually the other moment, right? Like the other moment that I thought, like I can't see how this gets read the other way because he's like, I'm, you know, like I, you know, arrest me, I'm sick, right? Which is like can read as another kind of like you know scumbag hiding behind the system, and then Rorschach and uh, you know invokes rough like you know righteous justice, but I do think it sells the fact that Rorschach breaks there a bit better than the comic. Right, like you know, you know, humans get arrested, dogs get put down, right? Um, and along those lines too, I think, like in the comics, the dogs are kind of doe-eyed, right, and like kind of like victims of circumstance, whereas they're a little bit more vicious in the movie, right? Like they're like literally like tugging on like a you know the the, the leg with the shoe still intact, right? Like it's it it, it does well to characterize that as is less monstrous than it than it. Than it oh yeah, well they, this is something I do wish actually that the that the movie had kept this in because there's a great uh, scene or there's a great panel actually in in the Watchmen comic where when Rorschach is talking about the dog, 
and he goes and he like looks outside the dogs look at him like excited they're like oh hey and they're and they're like and they're like tongues are out and they look nice and then it cuts to like rorschach's hand or whatever as he raises the cleaver and so in a certain sense it almost kind of like like it moves one to the other in a way uh where like rorschach is horrible in the comic because he slaughters the dogs whereas in this he he's kind of horrible because he how, how he slaughters the guy do you know what i mean it's actually like you know what one of the details about the comic that's great is um when he kills the dogs he gets a bunch of blood on his coat on his coat and that is the second set of coat that's the coat that he dies in because he gets out of jail and he doesn't like get his things from the prison he goes and he finds a stash and the stash is this second coat with that old blood stain on it it was just like a neat kind of like little detail or whatever but in the in the in the comic it comes from the the dogs in the in the movie it comes from the guy when he chops the guy's fucking head um yeah yeah uh <laughs> yeah like, but I so, think the but you know I think the 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 begging at the end that the guy does when he's kind of like whimpering and he's like you know don't do it and Rorschach and all the all you get from Rorschach is just like he's breathing his breathing right um I don't know man I mean really what it comes down to I think is like the performance I actually think that uh, that the movie adds a lot just by having like really well cast uh, like these these main characters it's really tough for me to kind of pick a favorite between. Uh, Jackie Earl Haley, who is Rorschach, who's phenomenal. Billy Crudup is so good as Dr. Manhattan. And it's crazy because if you watch him in other things, this is so off role for, like, this is not his type. But, like, he's just so good in this part. And also Patrick Wilson as Night Owl. I think all three of them just, like, absolutely I, kill it. I thought, I thought, uh, I don't know the actor's name, but Negan as as uh, the comedian was was oh, phenomenal yeah, yeah, as well yeah. oh god jeffrey dean morgan oh man he's so good i think honestly this is one of the one of the the things that made the watchman movie great is that they didn't build it on star power they built you know what i mean like typically with like a movie like this you know what i mean like you go and you find chris hemsworth or whatever right uh, but they didn't. They just they found character actors who've been in the business for a long time, and they're not making star making turns, right? They're just being hardworking character actors doing the job, right? Um, God, and they're so good. Billy Crudup is so good that I can't even. When I read the comic, I read it in that insanely soft spoken voice that he does. Do you know what I mean? Where and it's just it's just insane how uh, uh, how well it kind of gets across just that I don't know that character. No, I th- I like I agree with you absolutely one hundred percent. I thought it was great. the the only thing that um, is is a little bit off to me is that young comedian doesn't look quite young enough. But you know that what yeah, are you going to do about sixteen the... at that time? Yeah, which is uh, not so great. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's it's fine. Uh, for the most part, right? Like, it's also, like, not as explicit in the movie. Like, um, uh, so just kind of a quick question for you since it's, since it's on my mind. Is the is, – does the show follow from the comic or the uh, or the, the movie continuity? The comic continuity. Yeah, okay. this is actually uh, This is actually another take uh, that I've been seeing a lot. Um, the, uh, the show follows from the comic book continuity, like, with the squid and everything. Um, and I see a lot of people who, again, are shitting on Zack Snyder. They're like, oh, see, Zack Snyder should have done the squid in the movie, uh, which is part of why I was like, no, I don't think that's the right call. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, but uh, it's, yeah, it's, so it follows from the comic. Yeah, it's, it's it's different, right? Like, like I think I think it makes sense in the you know, like don't get me wrong, yeah. you know, I think it makes sense in the show, but like it is all about timing, right? In a show, you have. I mean, it's a nine-episode season, and it's also not recreated. You know what I mean? Like, in the show, it's a background detail, so you don't need to justify it in the same way with, like, the foreshadowing and all this other sort of stuff. I think it, I think it is the correct choice in the movie to change it. And, and also, like, not only to change it, but to change it something that is, like, introspective and meaningful to the characters. That's, that's the special thing about it to me. Yeah. Where, like, not only did they change it, but, like, imagine, you know, like, Stuff like this happens all the time where things get changed and they don't work because of the change. The thing they change it to is bad. A lot of the time, it's it's like Galactus is a cloud or whatever, right? Where it just loses, it just loses something in that kind of translation. The fact that they took the change and they were like, okay, we can't do the squid. How can we do something that is more personal, more intimate to these characters and their stories is honestly kind of impressive like i feel like i don't see that kind of thing at all yeah and 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 i think it's not only about the characters but it's also kind of like like i mentioned adapting it so it's a little bit more relevant to the current time period right like Mm -hmm. it's okay for it to be the the squid monster in the prequel to the tv show because the tv show is about modern times and the the prequel material can be about the 80s when which is what it was actually about whereas the movie is a modern re- – it's not quite modern. It's still set then, but it's like – Yeah, it's like also it's, about global warming. Yeah, and it's also – global warming and, and uh, like I said, I think it's supposed to be nodding at the conflicts in the Middle East, um, which, you know, the, the the comic was too, but like in a, in a different way. I think there was like, you know, a lot more. Yeah, and I, I have to say I was actually – this is another thing I was surprised about because I've also heard this um, where – People say that the movie kind of falls apart because it doesn't lean on the Soviet Union nuclear destruction as much. Maybe this is like a theatrical cut. I wonder if like some of these scenes get cut. But I was really surprised at how many and how often in the show or in the movie they were cutting to Nixon and Henry Kissinger. You spend more time with Nixon and Henry Kissinger in the movie than I think you do in the comic book. Um, and it really hammers home the the kind of... Um, like the th- threat of global nuclear warfare, uh, and so yeah, I don't know. It is uh, it it's it's really interesting to me, um, how hard it went for that stuff, even in two thousand and nine, and then on top of it, it sort of layered this other piece of the energy crisis on top with like the oil barons and stuff like that. I, I wonder also how much of this is kind of like cultural context, right? Like. Mm-hmm. 2009, we were still pretty, like, you know, there was the war in the middle, there, there were, like, the wars in the Middle East, but they weren't as kind of, like, it, it, like, tensions weren't as high, right? Like, for, for, for you know, I would say for better or for worse, but it's definitely for worse. We're kind of at, like, we're, we're at higher levels of tension that are, I think, like, they're not as bad as the Cold War, but they're kind of, like, around there, like, geopolitically right now. So the fact that, like, that's easier for us to kind of... um uh, for us to kind of like absorb by osmosis, right? Like kind of like, like we understand that tension because it's more like that. Now I think I think makes it more grokkable uh, yeah. in 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 twenty nineteen than it was in two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that definitely helps it. Um, yeah. Right. You know, something else I think that the movie really benefits from is the ability to 
kind of show things that happen in real time. Like something, so, so for instance, I mean, part of this is soundtrack, but also part of this is just, you know, like the fact that it is a, a motion picture. The Apocalypse Now moment with Dr. Manhattan where the Flight of the Valkyries plays and Dr. Manhattan is walking, you know, kind of through the, like the orange Vietnam sunset. But like the moment when he waves his hand and he evaporates the Viet Cong soldiers, but like there's that gooey sound effect and you watch like their intestines fall to the to the ground and stuff like that like the fact that dr manhattan's crime fighting style shall we say they do it again with like these gangsters in that restaurant or whatever is so gruesome and so bloody i think also really works in a way that like super enhances that character um and kind of right like his disconnection from humanity uh and there's a bunch of, like, little things like that that, like, work in a way that, like, the comic, you know, as good as it is, obviously, can't do, you know, like, a comic can never do the, like, the exploding guts thing in the same way that a, that a movie can. Um, and it really just, like, enhances the experience. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, even just, like, when the birth of Dr. Manhattan, right? Like, watching his face as he gets evaporated and then, like, every, and, and he just disintegrates. It's just, I don't know. It's so meaningful. Yeah. God, I love this movie. <laughs> I, and I, I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think it's, uh, you know, like, the greatest thing of all time. But I do, I do appreciate it. I, I think, I think it's very good. Um, um, I don't know if I like it enough to watch it multiple times at three, three and a half hours, but, um, um, but I do think it's, I, I do think it's, 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 it's really well, really well done in, in a lot of ways. Um, something I did want to kind of mention that I thought was that, that maybe wasn't done quite as well was, um, like, like a, a moment that I thought was really good in the comic was, 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 uh, Dan and, and, uh, and the second Silk Spectre. I'm terrible with these names. Um, uh, doing the fight, right? And like that, that kind of being an, an allegory for like, uh, sex, right? Um, like the, the, the final panel after they've beaten everybody up where they're kind of like sweating and breathing heavily. Um, I think really kind of sells that imagery where I didn't get that nearly as, as much in the, uh, yeah. in the movie. Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoy the fights on a visceral level and even yeah. kind of on like a, a, a mild thematic level in the sense that uh, like, I like the part where um, like Lori stabs the dude in the neck and like Dan breaks the guy's arm. It's, it's sort of the movie version of like how bloody and visceral the fights are in, in, in the comic where it's kind of going like, listen, this stuff is gruesome, and it's a lot more gruesome than the Biff Pows of, like, Adam West or whatever. Um, it's, like, the movie version of that, which I think is great. But I do agree with you. I, I do think um, there's that. There's also, like, kind of the fight scene in, like, the prison that are, like, a little bit superfluous in a way. Um, and so even if, like, the content of them I like, they don't really, like, fit together in, like, a puzzle piece way with sort of the, the greater whole, um, which sucks, you know. Uh, yeah yeah there's a couple of there's a couple of small things that are that are sort of like that you know and like i like i also said about the um 
uh, about the way that it ends with Dr. Manhattan and kissing her or whatever, right? Like, that are... It's like, the, th these are, these are like, nitpicky bullshit things, but for, like, me, essentially, right? Like, there's stuff that I would say, yeah, I don't think that's great, or it doesn't quite work the way I would want it to, but it all overall doesn't really, like, take away from uh, the, the experience or the quality in, like, a super measurable, you know, way. Um, like, there's also a moment uh, where... There's a moment where Dan is looking, he's like naked, he's like butt naked, and he's looking at the costume, and he's he just looks really fit. He just looks like he's like in really good shape. Whereas in the comic, Dan is like kind of flubby, you know what I yeah, mean? Like yeah, he has yeah. that paunch. Um, and, uh, and so stuff like that, I feel like. I kind of wish, you know, I kind of wish it was a little bit dad bodier, um, but, you know. I was gonna say also i think patrick i think patrick wilson is like a little bit too likable in that part to be honest um uh the he's not as pathetic as i feel like dan really deserves to be yeah maybe I, so this, this is something i actually thought of while watching the movie is like is is dan supposed to be a stand-in for like comic book fans right like he's a hero he he worships hollis mason right like and becomes it right, like you know, spends his money to become like a, an imitation of him. Granted, mm -hmm. it's functional, right? But like you know, I can see like you know pieces of like cosplay culture in that, right? Like, yeah. um, and you know, he's kind of sad, and he's only fulfilled by like pretending to be a superhero, um, and kind of in that same vein, right? Like, if you think of Zack Schneider as like a, a comics books fan, right? Like. If that's what he's supposed to be, making him less pathetic is probably like a, a, an aim, you know, like a, a thing that, that even on a subconscious level he might do, if that makes sense. You know, I, I actually do agree with that. Um, in fact, it's funny because I've heard that take before and I used to really hate it. But I think it's more true than I even wanted to admit. Probably because right. I'm like comic, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah. that, it's like it feels a little personal in a way, because um, like I've always been one of right. Those but kinds but of, like, that's kind of like Alan Moore, right? Like, being, but yeah, no, be that is yeah. I mean, exactly. It is like Alan Moore. A lot of these, um, a lot of these guys are the same sort of way. Um, Grant, Mor like Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, Mark Millar, they all kind of come from like North England, where apparently the te like television wasn't good, like. Like quality wise, so they just didn't have TVs in like north, like the north of England and like Scotland or whatever, and so a lot of their childhood was about comic books, and it wasn't even about like the big popular comic books. It was a lot about like these EC comics or whatever, right? Like kind of like more underground sorts of things. Neil Gaiman also sort of belongs to this. There's just, like this big British um, kind of like invasion. So these guys are all really, really hardcore fans right um of the of the genre no like of the material obviously um but yeah i did i i always used to be like no dan is not like making fun of me but i actually do think that that's true in the same way that like kind of rorschach is like an incel before incels in a way it's not quite right but yeah i, I don't know if, yeah it's the same sort of thing right like dan is kind of like a like a you know he's like a stan before stans exist that's not, that's not quite right either. Yeah. He's just, like, obsessive. He's, like, an otaku in a way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, or, like, a Trekkie, I think, is maybe the, the more time-appropriate version. Yeah, 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 yeah. For sure, for sure. That's absolutely correct, I think. Um, But, yeah, he's, he's a Comic-Con cosplayer now, right? Like, I wonder, I wonder what Alan Moore thinks of, like, the fact that it's, 
like all super like it's like super major not super mainstream but like fairly mainstream at this point like all of that right like like uh someone made a joke recently about like um about like somebody on a podcast I was listening to it was like an older like news guy type of thing it's like I was talking to this girl and she's like dresses up as people at Comic-Con and she was like hot I don't understand it right like the fact that that's like normal now right like is 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 interesting um and just kind of like is at odds with kind of like that pathetic nerd type of stereotype um but you know and I, I did I did see that that Alan Moore is not a fan of of this of of the not not a fan of the show but the fan not a fan of the show being made because this was like I doubt he's watched it. this this comment came out in like August. Yeah, he is uh, he is uh, he has been a long time curmudgeon uh, about this stuff. Um, in, in fact, so one of the things he negotiated to get the rights to Watchmen um, from DC. Uh, before he wrote it and the what the negotiation was is like as soon as it goes out of print right he'll get the rights to it right uh and then it ended up being the best thing like the best comic of all time or whatever so it's just like well obviously never been out it's of like print. yeah the, the, it's never gonna be out of print so he's just never gonna get the rights to it forever uh so yeah like even in the movie it says like Watchmen created by Dave Gibbons because Dave Gibbons doesn't give a fuck. He's like, yeah, dude, give me that paycheck, right? Like, but uh, you know, um, Alan Moore, he just rejects. He just rejects all of it. He uh, really dislikes any and all. He also just hates everything about, yeah. about this stuff. There, I think he just hates quotes. everything. Yeah, no. There's well, there's a lot of quotes about Rorschach specifically because he's like a you know like he's like a far leftist right, right. Like anarchist okay. whatever. And uh, and he wrote Rorschach to be this incredible condemnation, right? You know, he like he stinks, he's gross, he's ugly, right? Like he's he's undesirable, you know, in in so many different ways. And uh, and the fact that people like looked past all of that stuff and sympathized and empathized with Rorschach, he's like, what the fuck, you guys? And to be honest, I think a little bit of that is like not quite um, like not quite fair in a way. Uh, because, like, I don't think Watchmen works as a story that is malicious in that way, right? Like, it works as a story that is, like, uh, uh, like, it condemns this stuff, but not out of, like, malice. It's not like people who read Rorschach should look at Rorschach and be like, what an utter piece of, like, garbage trash. He is cool. And in the comic, he does cool things, right? Like, that line where he's like, oh, like, you're not, you know, you're not locked, or I'm not locked in here with you, you're locked in here with me, right? Like, that's a cool line that a badass says right after he kills someone like a badass, right? Even him going down to, like, the police or whatever and, like, using the flamethrower-y thing and shooting the guy with the grapple gun, like, that stuff is, like, is, like, cool in a way that, like isn't really supported by Alan Moore saying that like Rorschach is just like there to be loathed because he's not, he is like legitimately empathetic and he has a point of view. And that point of view is given kind of like real screen time and is like rational, even if it is like wrong, even if everybody's viewpoint is wrong, which is kind of the whole point, right? Like everybody's kind of like incorrect in, in their own sort of, sort of way. It's still not, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think another part of that is, is kind of what you just highlighted, which is that um, 
is that like it's not like he's one kind of like crazy person among like uh in, in the company of like sterling uh uh superheroes right like he's 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 an insane person among a variety of misfits who are all like you know misfits in their own way right like you know the like the the person that probably acts like the most personally maliciously is probably the comedian right like um i mean you know it uh, I, I feel like uh, this is kind of popping in my head, but like you know, the, the comedian uh, Ozzy Mendias, the, the what's what I want to use comparison is kind of like that that Stalin quote, right? Like one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. I feel like that kind of rings very true in in, in the way that that in, that works out. Um, but like I, I think those things, right? Like uh, kind of kind of make Rorschach less terrible by comparison. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and I get, and I get why people it's, it's, you know, this is, this is always a tough thing to do, especially when it comes to like media criticism. I think about it a lot when I think about kind of like some of these flawed sort like the Rick from Rick and Morty, um, or even like Tyler Durden or whatever people talk about sort of like the, um, the irresponsibility in a way of like these characters, because they are sort of, like, loathsome in their own sort of specific ways. I agree with that. But, like, there is a middle ground between this character is, like, a paragon and a role model. And this character is a Hitler, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, Zod, yeah, I talk about Zod a lot. Like, Zod in Man of Steel, I understand his motivation. I understand where he's coming from and why he's doing what he's doing. But I have absolutely no sympathy and empathy for him at all right and that's okay right like that is an an okay way to kind of like make your villain whereas a character that's like kind of closer to the middle might look like killmonger right who i have a lot of sympathy for right and he takes it just like a little bit too far but i really get where he's coming from and i feel for him and his death is a tragedy right the tragedy in man of steel is that superman has been forced to murder this guy the tragedy in black panther is that this guy who otherwise was a great figure felt like flew too close to the sun do you know what i mean and then and on the hero side there should all also be that kind of like distance in a way between like on one end you have superman or like captain america or you know whoever right who is the the ultra good guy who is doing the good stuff and you know you get it and then in from that you also have people who are flawed and are not great and look at things in the incorrect way but they're also still kind of like the hero and the protagonist of the story and you do sympathize and empathize for them despite their kind of like shortcomings do you know what i mean and a lot of the times this looks like you know, every Marvel movie follows this formula where it's like the selfish person or the selfish person learns to be self-sacrificing, right? They, they, they learn yeah. to be selfless and to be a superhero or whatever. Um, but I feel like we should also have a little bit more space for other types of flaws that like heroes kind of can have, right? You know, like, so for instance, like the, he- I mean, this happens all the time in TV, but it hasn't happened really when it comes to, um, uh, when it comes to like any of these movies, like the Marvel movies or whatever, but like the villain that turns to become a hero, I guess they're going to do it with the Harley Quinn movie come next year. But like, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of, th- that's the space I-, I think in which basically everybody in Watchmen 
inhabits where they are these like deeply deeply flawed people but you still understand and sympathize with them to like a certain amount and even if like i you know like i probably sympathize the least with like the comedian but even you know him going to his arch nemesis and crying and being drunk is still a moment of pathos for him do you know what i mean yeah i i and also like i think you're absolutely right um i don't want to diminish that but i think another part of this too is that like Ellen Moore very clearly has a particular bent, right? Mm-hmm. And when you have that bent, like, you can just kind of present the things you disagree with as themselves and expect people to disagree with them. But the people that agreed with those things in the first place are going to agree with them, right? Yeah. Like, like Rorschach is kind of an objectivist, um, right? Like, if you thought objectivism was right, then showing you an objectivist will be like, yes, this is good, right? Like, and he's kind of, I think he's kind of expecting to be like, well, he smells, right? It's like, whatever, right? Like, and I don't think that's fully there, but I I think there's just kind of like a level of like, what you present isn't always how it's going to be interpreted. Um, Yeah, yeah. Especially because like, in a lot of ways, you're going to end up in situations where you... Like, even in the, even in the context of the story, Rorschach isn't structurally the antagonist. Do you know what I mean? The, structurally, the antagonist is Ozymandias because we follow, you know, like we follow the protagonists as they are unraveling the mystery. It is Rorschach's killer mask killer theory that provides the narrative backbone. So you are just like kind of automatically rooted into a place where he is. I don't know. It's tough. I I, I don't really understand you, Alan Moore, but. Uh... That really sucks about those rights, dude. That fucking blows. <laughs> but uh, do you have anything else you want to say on the Watchmen movie before we move on? No, to our I weeks? love the Watchmen movie. I'm glad that you loved the Watchmen movie, and we could just gush about it uh, because I was really expecting a fight. <laughs> yeah, no, but, I, uh, I, I never thought it was. To be fair, I never thought it was terrible. It just I thought it wasn't. That yeah, great. You know, I think I think honestly, in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways, uh, I was also in this position where. Um, I was also in this position where a lot, you know, I've almost like internalized, right? Like a lot of people who have not liked this movie. And so maybe I was projecting a little bit of that sort of thing onto you, which was unfair. Yeah, it, it, it happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, how was, how was your week then? My week has been exceptionally busy for reasons I can't really talk about until tomorrow. Uh... What 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 about what about yours? <laughs> All right. Um, well, the the big thing I did this weekend was uh, I played Clash in the League of the oh Legends. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Okay. So you played. So we have both played one Clash. Yeah. Well, I, I played two technically because they did it both days. But um, oh yeah, yeah. Then me too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did your roster say the same? Yes. Yes. We were going to switch someone, and then we uh, we kicked friend of the cast Sal off the second day because we oh, wanted yikes. to keep the same team. It was it was fine. Um, <laughs> did he take a that, champ? Yes, he did. That's uh, good. Good job, Sal. Yeah. Um, we did worse the second day. Um, I also uh, there, there's some stuff there, but like I thought it was overall positive experience. Uh, I thought it was really neat. I really liked kind of like getting in on it. If you guys want to see what that was like, I did stream it and it should be in the VODs, I think. Um, that's twitch.tv slash eternal tango. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, you can be, I kept it on through like the scouting process. You can see the, this, the, the choices we were making in terms of like picking and banning. I thought that was a lot of fun. 
uh, kind of the whole like going really hard on it. Um, you know, there was some skill disparity on the team. Um, friend of the cash, Junki, his friend, uh, whose tag is GG mid, um, was definitely the best player on our team. And it kind of showed, um, there were some games where that was less true, but, um, you know, it's like our last game was against a team that was three golds and two plats. Um, whereas I'm like silver four and, uh, and like, uh, I think two of our support and our, and our carrier, both gold as well. Um, but they're like, not like it, it, it felt kind of mismatched and I could see why that would like war on, uh, like, like we're on, uh, our, our mid laner who you told us as much afterwards, afterwards. So, so, like so he, what was, so what was your overall record? Uh, over, like across the two days, it was, I think three and three. Yeah. Cause we won, we won two the first day. We went two and one the first day and it was really close. Like it was, it was, we, we won the first year. So it wasn't like we were in the losers bracket. And the second day we went one, one, one loss, win, loss. Okay, um, well, we actually did the same. Well, it was no, it wasn't quite the same. Because our first day, we lost the first match, and then we won the loser's bracket. And then our second day, we went, we lost the first match, won, and then lost in the in the finals of the loser's bracket. Um, so, okay, yeah, I, I, I get that. Yeah, I really loved Clash. Uh, it's funny because, like, on one hand... Uh, uh, I think in the bout of league that you and I kind of came back for, however long that was, a couple of months, right? Um, the my favorite moment was play, was playing in Clash because we were playing in Clash and the enemy team and I was the mid laner and the enemy team left up Yasuo and we first picked Yasuo and I just housed. I went like twelve and zero that game, and it is an unimaginable cool feeling to have like your main be the the character that like carries you to victory you know what i mean like the enemy team is like oh we can play around his you know what i mean like we can play around his yasuo or whatever they're not gonna first pick yasuo we'll just like counter pick it and then you like go off really hard on your favorite champion like that just feels that just like feels incredibly great especially in this tournament setting where like you know in, in a normal game where People are just banning whatever. They don't know they're up against me. They don't know to be afraid of my of my Yasuo um, in any variety. So me getting Yasuo and like and like destroying people is a little bit of like, you know, it's not it's not the same feeling as like trouncing somebody who essentially didn't respect you. You know, like Yasuo is my most played champion with like mastery seven and a gazillion you know points or whatever. Um, but also at the same time, I feel like I felt like Clash was a fun thing to do when I was, you know, like we were playing a lot and I was very practiced or whatever. Um, and as people were talking about coming in and doing it again, I just felt really out of practice. And I was like, boy, do I want to like dedicate like 10 or 15 hours of my week to getting up back and in running. Shape, yeah. yeah, back in shape or whatever. Like that's just like doesn't seem super, you know, like super fun and engaging. So, no, I definitely feel that. Um I kind of am facing down that barrel for next week's clash because there's one uh, next weekend as well. Oh, uh, oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, uh, if you're if you're interested, we can we can we can talk. We'll talk about that after this guest. Um, but yeah, uh, it was uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's just you know like kind of that work aspect is a little uh, it, it's it's a little daunting, um, especially when like. I like I enjoyed it because I got to play with Junki and some other people that that we know that were 
all right, but like I only really knew June Keywell, and I think I'd enjoy it more if I was playing with like people that I was like solidly. Yeah, uh, like, you know, friends. you and me and X and, you know, yeah, that, that, that yeah, makes a lot yeah, of sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, there's no way that I'm going to be playing Clash for the next weekend. Uh, okay. Because so much stuff is coming out this week. Okay, so tomorrow <laughs> is the new Hearthstone expansion drops, Descent of Dragons. They have revealed all of the cards. And let me tell you, people are complaining about the power creep. And honestly, I'm a little bit with, on, with them. <laughs> um, basically, since Descent of Dragons was first kind of... Uh, announced and the cards have been sort of like shown we've been getting small little like tastes or whatever but like as more and more of like the reveal season has come in it seems like there is a lot of power kind of packed into um the final set of the you know aptly named year of the dragon uh the one thing about the descent of dragons that i find sort of like interesting is the way in which it sort of plays around with kind of like set, uh, kind of like set specific mechanics. So the way dragon, like the way dragons have always worked, um, all of the different tribes have kind of like different uh, requirements in a way. Like murlocs are a little bit like slivers in that they tend to buff all murlocs. Beasts tend to buff specific beasts or whatever. Um, dragons the you the reward you get for playing a dragon deck is like a holding a dragon trigger like if you have a dragon in your hand this thing happens right so like chill ma from four years ago would say it's a six six with taunt that says it'll do it'll deal three damage to all minions when it dies if you're holding a dragon um and so there's a ton of dragons obviously in descent of dragons uh and dragon synergies that come with it but I definitely sort of, like, wonder a little bit in the same way that um, the energy package or, like, the energy cards of the whatever magic set that was um, kind uh, of defined the metagame. Yeah. And it was super insular because it's just, like, run the energy cards because the energy cards are all synergistic and you want to run as many of them as you possibly can kind of thing. I sort of wonder if the same sort of thing will end up happening kind of with these dragon cards or whatever. Um, and it will sort of, like, overshadow... Uh, almost everything else there's a lot of really powerful effects that are tied to to dragons like they basically they printed a card that's a two mana it's it's a spell two mana draw card if you're holding a dragon in your hand gain an empty mana crystal which is not only does it cycle not only does it draw you a card so it's like ramp but like ramp that doesn't cost you a card but also it is ramping you which is a really powerful effect in hearthstone uh, those ramp cards, uh, Wild Growth and you know Jade Blossom, uh, Nourish, all of that stuff really powered Druid into one of the highest win rate decks in the game. And it was basically all built on just the backs of Wild Growth and Nourish, right? Being able to ramp the Druid really far ahead really quickly. And, uh, and so, like, them reprinting it, but, like, conditional to dragons is going to be a little bit like, well, are we just going to see dragon everything for the rest of, uh, for, like, the rest of the metagame? Um... But for my for my money, uh, I think I'm really excited to see the Galakron cards. Have I talked about the Galakron cards before? You have not. Okay, so the Galakron cards is a cycle of five cards for five of the classes, and it's a hero card. And uh, and his the hero power varies from class to class. Like for a warrior, it's like give your hero plus three attack. Uh, for priest, it's add a random priest minion to your hand. Uh, for you know, uh, for shaman, it's put a two-two or two-one elemental in play with rush. Um, so they're all kind of like minor-ish effects, but like they generate value in the long term. So fair enough. 
but the thing that you can do with Galakrond is a keyword called invoke. When you invoke Galakrond, it's like you use his hero power. So if I'm a warrior and I play an invoke Galakrond card, I gain three attack that turn. Or if I'm a priest and I play an invoke Galakrond card, I get a priest minion. Um, and depending on the number of times you invoke Galakrond, when you actually play the hero power, or when you actually play the hero, he is more powerful. So the base version of Galakrond in Warrior is draw a minion and give it plus four, plus four. Um, the second upgraded, so if you invoke twice, it's draw two minions, give both of them plus four, plus four. And if you invoke three times, or if you invoke four times total, it's draw four minions, give all of them plus four, plus four, and equip a five-two weapon. Um, and so, obviously, like, invoke and all this stuff is going to be, like, powerful and interesting to kind of see how it plays out. Uh, but uh, but I think that is the it's the other sort of, like, danger, right? Like, are we going to be looking at a metagame where, you know, playing that invoke Galakrond package is so powerful that you just kind of do it in everything? And it's super insular in that way. You just kind of have, like, these 12 or however many card slots that are locked for, like, the rest of time. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I feel like the dragon thing is probably a little bit more universal, but Galakrond's sounds like the type of thing that you can beat it out with, like, aggro, right? Like, if you need to invoke... You, you can Can you invoke while he's on the field? Yeah. Okay, so maybe not. I mean, I it's not... Ba- the, the, the invoke effects aren't very big. Like, most of the time, the idea is that when you play your Galakrond and you've invoked a bunch, your Galakrond is really is going to like really power you up. In in Warrior, you get a big hand. In Priest, it basically wipes the board. Um, like I think it's destroy one random enemy minion for one, and then it's two random enemy minions, and then it's four random enemy minions. In Rogue, it's draw four cards, and they all cost zero. So like it's an insane tempo play. Okay. To like play a maxed out Galakrond, you know what I mean. So, so sorry, is Galakrond a hero card or a or a or a creature? A hero card. Okay, so it replaces your hero, and then your two mana spells that effect. Yeah, yeah. And if you invoke afterwards, it'll upgrade as well. You don't have to invoke before you play the Galakrond. Uh, no, no, no. You have to you when Galakrond is in your hand. Or, like, in your deck or whatever, he will upgrade until you play him. But once he's on the right. field, you can't, like, trigger the max level Galakrond battle cry anymore. All yeah. hero cards come with a battle cry effect, and it's, you're basically just upgrading that battle cry effect a whole bunch. Oh, okay. So the hero effect. Oh, sorry. Like, I the thought. The hero power is, is always the same, it never upgrades, but it triggers anytime you use the invoke card. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I, I, yeah, yeah. No, I yeah. thought what you were saying was that. Like the hero power was the draw four cards and that plus four plus four, which seemed kind of insane. Oh, that is, you. yeah, that's insane. That's yeah, that's yeah. Not it. Uh, yeah I was, the hero uh, powers are all like muted. Some, I mean, some of them are value oriented, right? Like, so for instance, the priest one is very value oriented. Just like keep throwing priest minions into your hand, obviously. Uh, but like the the all of the projections for tempo or for warrior Galakrond is that it's going to be a tempo warrior thing because you're constantly generating plus three attack on your face and that's either a lightning you know it's either three damage on their face or it allows you to control the board um and the different classes all have different like invoke cards like there's a warrior spell that is three man three mana deal three deal one damage to all minions which is like a whirlwind effect that's a like a warrior class thing but like the but it also invokes Galakrond, which means that you get three attack 
And so it's basically swipe, but like for what less mana. Um, whereas like the priest Galacro or the priest uh, invoke card is uh, a five mana destroy an enemy minion invoke Galakron. So it's like the targeted sort of spot removal that a control deck wants. Okay. No, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Sounds super interesting, but I, I definitely see those power creep issues. Um, uh, although it is it is good that, that they can patch it if they want to, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I was, that's always, yeah. Mark Mark Rosewater talked about this recently about uh, rules changes to to magic on his on his commute podcast, which is a great podcast. I think I've recommended it before. Um, I guess I need to say that I am invested in Hasbro, so you know, take that with whatever that means to you guys. Um, but uh, he actually does it on his way to work. You can hear him driving and occasionally, like a car, uh, like somebody honk in the background. Um, but uh, he talks about like the process they go through between making a rules change, and he brings up the fact that it's much harder for them to do retroactive rule changes because it has to work for paper. Um, and like he, one thing he was talking about was like if he could go back into it from the beginning, he would call all spell like all uh, like kind of like spell effect spells. Like he would call all sorceries and instance sorceries, and then call instance like instant sorceries. That way he can then call like creatures with flash instant creatures or whatever um but he can't make that change he can't make that change moving forward because every card that says something something sorcery or it'd be very tough to because every card that says something you know like you know recover a sorcery from your graveyard right or something like that or like play a you know um it will have semantic meaning that would make sense in the current context that would be wrong um because it was it was meant for the old context, and that just makes it too difficult to, like, practically do. Yeah, like, if I got a card that's, like, cast an instant or sorcery from your opponent's graveyard, right? But, yeah, like, so that, if you that have one that... an instant creature, that would be an instant, so oh, yeah, I could yeah. cast a creature from your graveyard. Yeah, or, like, the other way, it's, like, just those sorceries, like, any instant wouldn't be affected by it, right? Or yeah, yeah. That typically wouldn't be, yeah, that, exactly that, Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to, to 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 hear that kind of stuff. He also um, hasn't been with Magic for forever, though, right? Like he joined Magic later than these sorts of decisions were made. I thought. Yeah. Um. Then then that one. Yeah. But like he he talks about Garfield's original vision and whatnot. Um. But like things that they did change that you can do is they like took all semantic meaning or all semantic meaning off of creature types, right? Like wh- like what used to be the wall property is now Defender, which is an affix on the card. Yeah, I remember um, that. That was uh, walls can't attack. Yeah, uh, that was a that was like a thing. That was like a big deal. Uh, yeah, because you well, had cards that was like turn target whatever into a wall, but you can't do yeah. that anymore because like you know. Well, I mean, it, it, you, the, it the just sub- gives it defender. Yeah, yeah, you, you substitute in that effect. Um, uh, he was also talking about like something that he potentially wants to do in the future is remove the legendary thing altogether and like maybe throw in a a unique keyword to replace it because he doesn't like things riding on the super type. Yeah, that um, makes sense to me. I've actually always thought that that was the case. They made a really big change. I mean, I, I was playing they've, Magic They've, ch- they've changed during... it multiple times. Oh, really? Well, so the original change... So, okay, originally this is how I understood Legendaries to work. When I had my Legendary in, in play, if I ever played... If somebody else ever played the same Legendary, it would instantly die as like a state-based effect. Um, that was the that was like the onslaught era, and the reason that this sucked was because a chroma angel of madness, I think, um, which was just like a it was like an eight mana six six with like flying haste trample prot black prot red like all these other sorts of things. Um, 
was such a powerful legendary finisher for a lot of games and it kind of meant that in any control v control matchup whoever dropped a chroma first won because like it was just hard to remove a chroma and if you can't remove a chroma and play your own a chroma you can't win the game but then they changed it with the kamigawa set to be whenever another legendary of the same you know like the, whenever the next legendary enters play both of them die it, it like blows them up so at least now i can use my akroma to kill your akroma if i want kind of thing uh what, what do they change it to after that um it's per player right like you can both have akroma um oh my god yeah really? that's been that yeah it's been that way for for a while um the other wow. change was this I, so be- I, be- so I believe <laughs> yeah, i yeah i believe that this change happened around the same time is that um like it used to be like for planeswalkers you could only ever have one jace right and that was like jace across all of his iterations um but now you can have like you can have multiple jaces if they're different types of jaces right like you can have you know jace, jace mind sculptor, sculptor, sculptor yeah. and jace jace bellerin i think is yeah the yeah one, right yeah 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 wow that's um, interesting wow that's really freaking interesting Okay. All right. That's that's weird. That's so yeah. weird. I actually because I I remember at the time I really liked the legendary change because like you know it kind of turns your legendary into a removal spell at that point in a way. And it's like hey man, that's a hefty removal spell. Pay eight mana or whatever to like kill the enemy at chroma. But like at least that's like a cool thing built into sort of like the balance. Um, yeah. You know I, what I mean? I, like I I think if I remember correctly, and this is going off memory, this isn't something I've read recently, but I think. That was like warping the meta, right? Where like you were running legendaries kind of in your sideboard so that you could sideboard them in as removal for if your opponent's deck was running them uh-huh. or something like that, which is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not See, I would say that's cool, but I don't know. I, I you know, I, I haven't played Magic in a long time, so I wouldn't be surprised if like there's more nuance that I'm not picking yeah, up. Yeah, I, I, I think part of that is like, you know, like decks without a lot of like tools to deal with that kind of thing might be like disadvantaged by like con- I, I think that puts control in a in a stronger place mm-hmm. um than maybe they wanted um there's probably an article on that somewhere i'm sure like mark rosewater loves talking about this kind of stuff so i'm sure he's got an article somewhere i'll see if i can dig one up for for next time yeah that's um, really interesting yeah i mean yeah. i i'm definitely very interested in uh in these sorts of like rules changes and how these underlying kind of systems work um like for instance you know one of the things that kind of hit control warrior over the past year is they changed the way that discover worked um the discover mechanic which just generates like random cards out of thin air essentially um used to be weighted towards class cards so you had four times it was four times more likely that you would pick up a class card out of a discover pool than you would pick up a neutral card of it of whatever individual card that was right um and and, you know, and, like, at the time, that obviously made, like, a lot of sense um, because, like, that you know, the class cards are powerful. They wanted people to be playing inside their class a lot. Uh, but, like, as time went on, it also was, like, a consistency thing where just, like, if you're a new player and you're walking into Hearthstone and you need to understand how Discover works, the fact that there's this, like, hidden rider on all of the Discovers that you're doing – um, just like isn't great and it's not like very readable so they just made it that everything is equally weighted in the pool um, which has the opposite effect now right like it is a lot less common or a lot 
less often that you will find a class card in a big pool of discovers. Um, but like the game makes more sense to somebody who just like walks into it, which obviously, you know, like makes a lot of sense. But like at the time control warrior was really benefiting from having a lot of discover effects that were letting them pull powerful class cards out of the discover pool. Right. You know, like there was a warrior card that was discover a taunt minion. There was a warrior card that was like discover mechs and stuff like that. And so being able to pull out the, you know, class cards are inherently more powerful than neutral cards. Um, so being able to pull out your class cards kind of like over and over and over again, um, was, uh, was a little bit of a problem. So that's how they, that's how they kind of like nerfed it in a way. Um, yeah, no, and and they like the Sin Rider thing is, is it's also a problem in Magic. They talk so there's this old rule that if you tapped an artifact, its effect would turn off. Uh-huh. Um, oh, I remember uh, that rule. Yeah, yeah, and the, the classic example was Howling Mind, like let you draw an extra card. I think at the start of your turn, but if you could tap it with like I think it's called like Winter Orb, um, then you could deny that to your opponent. Um, they said that like it was such like a, a weird kind of corner case rule that like sometimes they forgot about it and like they they published like one or two artifacts that were, like, completely, like, screwed up by the fact that, like, um, Winter War could turn them off, like, especially once they had, like, a drawback on them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so they got rid of that rule. Um, and most famously, uh, Mana Burn, which is, like, a thing that you had to explain immediately oh because God. it was... I like, remember Mana Burn. Yeah, hell yeah, I remember yeah. Mana Burn. So for those of you at home that don't know, Mana Burn was that if you didn't, use a mana in your mana. Like, if you tapped a land for mana and you didn't use that mana, it would deal a damage to you. And there were a couple of cards that, like, took advantage of that effect. But, like, very famously, um, when they were considering removing the mana burn rule, they said, play this next... play the next month of games without mana burn and see how it changes the game. And they came back and no one... Like, it hadn't mattered at all. So, like, okay, it's out. There were a couple of fringe cases where that was a win condition because uh, there are a couple of cards that let you take control of your opponent's turn, um, and so you would just tap all of their, you yeah. just like tap all of their shit, and it would deal like ten damage to their face because you would tap all their lands, you wouldn't use the mana on anything. But um, yeah, mana burn. Whoa, what a concept! Yeah. That was funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, and the, the the big one that they got rid of was uh, was anti. Like, built into the game, which was technically not an optional rule, was um, after you draw drew your seven cards, you flipped the eighth card, and that was an ante. And if you lost the match, you had to give it to your opponent. Um, and they just, like, apparently, like, immediately no one ever played with it. And, like, it fell out of the official rules, like, relatively quickly. But it like, was... That's like a Yu-Gi-Oh rule. That's like the premise of, like, Yu-Gi-Oh! Season yeah. 2. That, so... Like, when, when you lose, your opponent gets your best card or whatever. So, so, so the the interesting part of that was like the motivation behind it was that Richard Garfield didn't think the like didn't know the game was going to be as successful as it was. So he was like, "Well, the meta will get like everything will get stale, and your everybody you'll just have your collection. You'll ne- it'll never change. So if we like force people to like trade cards, right? With this anti rule, we'll get like meta drift or whatever, right? And then the game was a, it was it was a smashing success, and they made like you know, a billion cards didn't need to do that anymore. And that's why it fell out. But it was, I, I just thought it was super, um, I thought it was super interesting. Um, yeah, that I'll link the really podcast. Interesting. Yeah. Really interesting and really cool. And it's, uh, it, you know, it's that kind of stuff that I think is, uh, I mean, I, it, it happens a little bit in Hearthstone, but in Hearthstone, they just have like the ability to change or like even the ability to like introduce new stuff like rush, for instance. Um, like people have talked about how, r- th- so charges, 
when my minion enters play, I can attack with it, and I can just hit you in the face, right? Which ended up being a really powerful ability, because it let you kind of, like, keep your charge minions in hand, and then you just, like, played charge minions and hit people in the face for, like, 20 damage. Um, but Rush is charge, but you can't go face. You can only hit other minions. And they, 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 like, introduce Rush as an, uh, uh, as an expansion mechanic, right? Like as a, it was a mechanic that was tied to the Witchwood expansion, but it was like so good a mechanic that they just added it to the rest of Hearthstone. And now there's like a gazillion rush cards, more rush cards than there are even charge cards at this point. Um, and, uh, and in a lot of ways, like rush is kind of what charge always should have been, but like, wasn't because they didn't really realize the power of like essentially face warrior or I'm sorry, face hunter decks that could just like continually go face, face the place, smork, smork, smork. Um, uh, and so like, there's also sort of like that kind of ability where like, if you nerf all of the charge cards so that they're not good and then introduce, uh, essentially a replacement for charge, like, I don't know. That's, that's, that's what, that's what it is. That's how, that's how it works. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, but, they, so, in Magic, they call that evergreening and deciduous, like, evergreen effects and deciduous effects. Um, deciduous effects fall off. Yeah, because they're also, like, Invoke, obviously, is going to be a deciduous effects. It's going to, it's going to so, well, so, so, the end of the... So, so deciduous effects are ones that will come back, but not every time, right? Like, there oh. will always be, like, Trample, but, like, Landfall, right, comes back around every time there's a Zendikar expansion. Um, so that's technically deciduous. Um, so okay, that makes sense. So like, Hearthstone might not be old enough to have real deciduous effects. No, they, there haven't been any yet. I mean, there are there are times when cards will call back to older mechanics, um, but like they will not carry the keyword. Famously, not carry the keyword, right? Like, um, there's a there's like a two mana shaman spell, and it's an echo card because the card is a reference to the Witchwood expansion. But like, it doesn't say echo on it; it just says repeatable this turn. So you can just cast it as many times as as you can um that's really interesting that's really really freaking interesting uh deciduous effects yeah i do wonder if certain deciduous effects or if certain effects will become like deciduous effects in hearthstone it seems like it seems pretty clear uh that like once they figure out a mechanic is stronger than just like an expansion mechanic um you know they they, they lean into it pretty hard uh, so, yeah, I mean, like, it, it, it's probably a function of the age of the game, right? Like, I'm sure that, like, at some point there will be an effect they want to bring back from an old set, right? Like, you know, like, I could see a return to Gadget Zan set coming out for Hearthstone that has all of those, like, mechanics again. Yeah, right? yeah, for sure. Um, Even stuff like hero cards, right? Like, the original hero cards weren't called hero cards. They were called Death Knight cards because, like, they were Death Knights. But then they added new heroes that were not death knights um which was you know its own its own sort of thing um but anyway i guess that's our time yeah um if you guys at home would uh would like to tell us what you think about uh the Watchmen movie or uh these training curriculums we're talking about or any of the other things we talked about on this podcast you can reach at reach us at podcast at some or some at gmail.com you can follow us at twitch.tv slash some um, rate and review us where you can find uh, podcasts, and if you feel like you give us money on Patreon. Um, uh, that's everything. Hi, buddy. What, what do you want to promote this week? Uh, I like that you just assume. Uh, there's going to be a pretty big announcement come tomorrow morning. We'll talk about it, I'm sure, next week on the podcast. 
Uh, but I'm very excited to talk about some of the upcoming projects that uh, we are uh, that we are tackling. But I won't say anything more here. Yeah, it'll be it'll be live soon enough. Yep. All right. Well, uh, in that case, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners. <laughs>